Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we'll look at the other passage. We read the first one, the other passage concerning the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We'll begin in verse 18. We're continuing our Christmas series that we've called Songs of Emmanuel. We've just been taking some of the classic hymns of our faith and going back to the texts which inspired these hymns. The beautiful hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is very interesting because it's written as a prayer. It is a prayer to Emmanuel from the vantage point of the faithful awaiting the arrival of Messiah. And the hymn specifically references God's chosen nation, that Emmanuel, God with us, would come to save his beloved people of Israel. And there's a verse that's not often included in hymnals, and it says this, O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. In other words, Emmanuel is the God of Mount Sinai who gave his law to Israel. And now the petitioner asks Emmanuel to come back and to come once again to redeem his wayward people. And of course, we know the fulfillment of this wish that Jesus Christ came as Emmanuel to provide spiritual reconciliation with God through the substitutionary death on the cross. He provided first for Israel and through him also all nations are now blessed with the opportunity to have their sins forgiven. And so now we come to the New Testament text, which really most directly connects the Emmanuel prophecy back in Isaiah 7.14, which we looked at in great detail last week, connects that prophecy specifically with the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the most shocking aspect, of course, of the Isaiah prophecy is that Emmanuel, God with us, would be born of a virgin. And this is really the central feature of this text. The, that is the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ. Verse 18, Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, the angel says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And verse 25, Joseph had no relations with his wife until she had given birth to a son. Four times over, we're, the, the text makes certain that we get this. Now, this miraculous event might more accurately be labeled the virgin conception of Christ, that Jesus' conception in the womb of Mary was not the result of relationship with her husband. Mary was a virgin at the time of Jesus' conception and continued to be so up to the time of his birth. Verse 25 will tell us this. But since we refer to this event traditionally as the virgin birth, it's easier just to keep that label. Now, for those of you who have been taught and who have been in the Word of God and believe the Word of God, the virgin birth of Christ is simply accepted and believed. Why? Because the Bible says so. And that's the end of that argument. But next to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Christ is the most debated topic concerning the Lord Jesus. Many have tried to downplay this truth as secondary or as unimportant But listen carefully, Satan must think it's important because he waged an attack on the belief in the virgin birth of Christ almost immediately in the conception of the church. The famous second century work, Dialogue with Trypho, recounts a series of debates between a guy named Justin, he was a philosopher who converted to Christ, and Trypho, a Jewish unbeliever. 
Trifo had called Justin's belief in the pre-existence and the incarnation of Christ absolute foolishness. And so Justin, in his debate, appealed to Isaiah 7.14, the promise of Messiah, as speaking of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, born of a virgin. The attacks continued in the second century after Christ. The second century pagan philosopher named Celsus He denied the virgin birth, and he denied everything about Christ that was miraculous. Celsus wrote that Jesus was born because Mary had an affair with a Roman soldier, and that Jesus' time in Egypt as a young boy was a time in which he hired himself out as a servant in order to make money. And during that time, Jesus learned Egyptian magical arts and came back doing so-called miracles, and by these tricks, he then claimed to be God. And you might think that's ridiculous. But the view of Celsus became widely known and widely believed in the second century. But in the mid-third century, the theologian Origen wrote a response. He called it against Celsus, and he corrected the factual errors as well as appealing to the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy that Messiah would be born of a virgin. And you notice that both Justin and Origen regarded the Matthew and the Luke accounts as authoritative and inspired. In the 4th century, the Apostles' Creed was constructed by great men of God, not the Apostles. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it reflected accurately their beliefs. But notice how fast the Apostles' Creed gets to the virgin birth to boldly proclaim this truth as a priority. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It takes three lines to get to the virgin birth of Christ. But the debate didn't stop there. We could fast forward to the late 19th century, early 20th centuries. Once again, the battle of the virgin birth was raging. Liberal theologians who were questioning everything miraculous in the Bible, not to mention questioning the inerrancy and reliability of the Bible itself, They were contesting the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. They they said it was either unbelievable or that it was unnecessary or they would try to reinterpret Scripture in some weird non-literal fashion. But those who held to the authority and the inspiration of the Bible insisted that the virgin birth is essential. It's essential in its content for the Christian. And why is it essential? Because it was the guarantee of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. But to the religious liberals, they felt it was shifting a lofty spiritual issue to merely now just a biological issue. And the liberal of that day, which has now become normal uh, thought in the dying mainline denominations of our country, the liberal of that day felt that God is everywhere active and present, but he works only through natural law and everyday processes. They deny that God works in miraculous ways in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, because of this division of thought in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the virgin birth basically became a litmus test. Anyone who believed the virgin birth had no trouble accepting the other miraculous events of Scripture. And in fact, this became a very important question in ordination examinations for potential pastors. Because a potential pastor's view on the virgin birth had massive implications for his view of Christ as being supernatural and from heaven, And for his view of scripture as inspired and authoritative, an ordination board could ask a potential pastor, what do you think of the virgin birth? And if a guy said, I don't believe in it, then they said, then you're not going to be a pastor. 
because so much hinges on this. Today, according to one study done just less than two years ago, belief in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is at its absolute lowest point in history. All kinds of objections to the virgin birth abound today. Let me just give you a few samples. Some say the account of the virgin birth was just copied from mythology. It's just copied from mythology. That Matthew and Luke were reading mythology and said, hey, this is a good idea. Let's put this down. Atheists have long gone to these accounts of mythology of Egyptian or Greek or Roman gods to look for some sort of loose parallel so that they can, uh, quote unquote, prove that Matthew and Luke simply copied other stories. For example, the Egyptian deity Horus is said to have been conceived by the virgin Isis. But this is a case, of course, of atheists looking for a version of that story which fits their belief that Matthew and, Mark, Matthew and Luke rather copied mythology. The best Egyptian account of Horus is clear that this is not the case. In fact, one scholar wrote, quote, There is no ancient evidence of any ancient narrative depicting Horus as being born of a virgin. So they changed the story to fit their narrative. The god Mithras is claimed by atheists to be described as born of a virgin, but the Roman version of this myth has Mithras as a full-grown adult, weirdly emerging miraculously from the side of a rock. And atheists actually said, well, it was a virgin rock. In fact, one pair of scholars examined the top five candidates. The atheists say, these are the myths, these are the top five after which Jesus was patterned, and they found in each instance that there is no resemblance to the virgin birth of Christ. So it's just made up. Here's another objection. Human logic says that virgin birth, the virgin birth can't be true. Human logic says it can't be true. In the last several decades, the so-called search for the historical Jesus has been carried out by scholars determined to prove that the gospel accounts of Christ are unreliable. And because of this, it's given a shift in the basis for truth. For them, and and now this is so prevalent in the Christian church, truth is no longer about what the text of Scripture says, but about what a modern-day person can or cannot legitimately believe. The German theologian Rudolf Bultmann, in the early 20th century, he argued very heavily that since modern humanity cannot believe in miracles, the miracles cannot be true. In fact, his big area, what he's famous for, is what he called the demythologizing of the Bible. Re-explaining the events of Scripture with natural explanations. And what he, what he taught was that the New Testament was simply the human account, the human opinion of the writer's encounter with God and Christ, and that these writers were too ignorant to explain anything in natural terms, so they used supernatural terms instead. He failed to realize, though, that the miraculous element of Scripture is at the core of the gospel. By the way, Bultmann sought to demythologize not just the virgin birth, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it happened in some natural fashion. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said is a bad idea. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Basically, Bultmann's goal, which has now taken root all over in liberalism all over the world, was to make the Bible palatable, to make it more believable to the so-called sophisticated modern mind as if those people living in Jesus' day were simpletons who couldn't understand anything. 
And so human logic now became the test of truth. How about this? Let me give you better human logic. Better human logic says a God who cannot or will not do the miraculous is not worth serving. And a God who cannot come to earth in miraculous fashion is to be suspect and doubted. Now that makes sense. We need a God who will prove himself to be who he is. There's another objection. The virgin birth can't be true because of the contradictions in the Matthew and Luke accounts. And I'm saying that in quotes because there are no contradictions in the Matthew and Luke accounts. Not one person has ever found one. It's very simple. Matthew's gospel is how Joseph found out about the virgin birth, or virgin conception rather, and Luke's gospel is how Mary found out. No one has ever identified the single contradiction. They form the whole story from two different perspectives. Joseph's perspective after the conception of Christ, Mary's perspective before the conception of Christ. It's not a contradiction, it's just two different stories that form one whole narrative. Another objection that might surprise you, but this one's very prevalent today, the virgin birth is a myth made up as part of Christianity's attempt to subdue women. That the virgin birth is all about subduing women. This was and is the view of prominent liberal Bible scholars of the 20th century and now into this century. One of the most prominent was a 20th century Catholic feminist theologian. I can't even say those three words together. It's just weird. Named Mary Daly. She held two doctorates. She taught at the Jesuit College, Boston College, for 33 years. And she described herself, quote, as a radical lesbian feminist. She was adamant and influential in her belief that the doctrines of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the fall of man, and the virgin birth were all myths originating from a dominating patriarchy which stole the power of women and that that was the point of Christianity. And so for her, the story of the virgin birth of Jesus was just another attempt to subjugate women to men. And ironically, Daly and many others following after her in this feminist theology came up with all kinds of theories, all of which denigrate women. They believe, many of them, that Mary was actually raped. Others say that Mary was an immoral woman. Every theory that they have, though, insists that Jesus had a human father from an illegitimate union. So there are no lack of objections to the virgin birth. But for us, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin birth is extremely important because it gives us confidence concerning Christ. I mean, after all, we're placing all bets on the person of Jesus Christ. You are placing your eternal destiny into the hands of this man who lived 2,000 years ago and who claims to be able to take care of you the day you die. And so the virgin birth is important to us. He must be all he claims to be or we are beyond hope. And so I'd like to approach this text this morning from that vantage point that the virgin birth gives us great confidence concerning Christ. And so let's just look at some of the ways that we receive great confidence. First, the virgin birth gives us confidence in the sinlessness of Christ. The sinlessness of Christ. And we'll begin in verse 18 and just work our way through the text and let it unfold. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Now you notice that Matthew is describing something historic, something unheard of, something never before seen in the world, and he does it in one sentence. One sentence. He doesn't try to prove his case at all. He simply states the fact of the miraculous conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And if you think about this for a moment, if this story was made up or if it was uninspired, what is human habit? Human habit would be to try to be much more convincing, to give a list of witnesses, corroboration from family members. Well, there are three cousins here who saw this and the shepherds can attest to it and so forth. But the heavenly author, the Holy Spirit, merely states in one sentence the fact of the conception of Christ as being a miracle. The Lord Jesus would be conceived in the womb of Mary. Mary came from a fairly poor family in the northern city of Nazareth. She had a sister named Salome. Salome would be the mother of James and John, the apostles, and therefore they would be Jesus' first cousins. Luke chapter 3 confirms for us that she is descended from King David. And the Luke account of the angel Gabriel announcing the coming conception and birth of Christ to Mary describes her as godly, as sensitive, as humble, and a very submissive young woman. She would probably be in her early to mid-teens, really normal marriage age of that time. And she's betrothed to Joseph. We know very little about Joseph. He was a carpenter in Nazareth also, This is most likely an arranged marriage between their two families. He would have been anywhere from from several years older to a couple of decades older than Mary. And we're pretty certain that Joseph was dead by the time Jesus was beginning his ministry. And so this couple is betrothed. Now, don't think of betrothal the same way we think of engagement in our culture. A betrothal was a legal contract. It was a contract between the bride's family and the bridegroom's family in which the couple is now considered legally married, though the actual marriage ceremony had not yet taken place. The betrothal was a time of probation. Can they handle the real-life adult responsibilities of marriage? It was a time of testing of faithfulness. Very often during the betrothal period, the, the couple barely saw each other at all. They might be betrothed. They might just be meeting for the first time, and then they won't see each other for six months or a year until their wedding day. The end of verse 18 makes it very clear before they came together that Mary became pregnant prior to any sexual contact with Joseph. And this has major implications for the perfection, for the sinlessness of Christ. Why does it tell us of the sinlessness of Christ? Because the virgin birth, listen carefully, gives us certain knowledge that Jesus did not inherit sin's curse from Adam. He didn't inherit Adam's curse. If Jesus had been conceived normally or even a possibility existed that he was conceived normally, then we would call into question his sinlessness, his qualification to pay the price for our sins. Now, there's no scripture which says directly that our sin nature is transmitted through the Father, but we are certain of this. We are certain that Adam, as the male head of all humanity, has been held responsible for the sin nature of mankind. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man. Now, it's not that men are greater sinners than women, but rather that God held Adam responsible for the passing on of the sin nature. Now, someone might argue that Mary might have contributed to to a tainted nature of a child as a sinful human mother. Catholics get around this very easily. They just say, well, she was sinless. 
Well, there, there is no verse that says that. But even if you find it doubtful that our sin nature is passed through the Father, here's something that the angel promised Mary that we read in Luke one thirty five: The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Remember, Jesus has always been Holy God. He is pre-existent. He was not created. And so, as Holy God, nothing is going to taint Him or make Him sinful anyway. But the virgin birth assures us of that fact. We have assurance that He is sinless. We're assured, for example... Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. With a glorious promise. We're also assured later in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The virgin birth tells us that instinctively. And if Jesus is not sinless, we have no mediator. We have no one to impute righteousness to us because he would now fall into the category of all other men that there is none righteous, no, not one. And if he's in that category, then he can't be our savior. And so the virgin birth gives us this glorious confidence in the sinlessness of Christ. Virgin birth also gives us confidence in the nature of Christ. The nature of Christ. And we'll just let the story continue to unfold in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. First thing that Joseph knew about the situation is that Mary is pregnant. His only assumption is his only assumption can be is that she had been with another man because he knew it wasn't him, and so obviously he can't marry her. But he was kind, he was compassionate, he didn't want to humiliate her or subject her even to a potential death penalty. And so he took the way out offered in the somewhat ambiguous law of Deuteronomy twenty four. And he resolved to divorce her with minimal trouble for her. But when the angel came to Joseph, notice the official title with which this humble carpenter is addressed. Joseph, son of David. He reminds him of his lineage. Joseph is the descendant of the great king David. And while he would not be the biological father of Jesus, he would act as the legal father. And as such, he qualified now Messiah King to be the promised king who comes from David himself. And so Joseph is exhorted, don't fear, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, what might he be fearing? Well, there's numbers of things. His potential fears could be perhaps of being accused of unlawful behavior himself, which would carry consequences. He might have feared being a social outcast for marrying what the society would perceive as a harlot. He might be afraid of marrying a woman who would prove unfaithful later if she was unfaithful the first time and ruin his life. He might fear the legal consequences of having a child who is not his own. So there's all kinds of things he could have feared. But the angel tells Joseph not to fear for one very good reason. 
the Holy Spirit has conceived this child in Mary's womb. It's the best reason of all. Now, the implications for the fact that Jesus has a human mother and is conceived as a human being by God himself, these are very important for us because the virgin birth tells us that this child is human and this child is God. Why? Because a son of God is God. That was very common theological knowledge, by the way. That, that wasn't something profound. Even the unbelieving Jews in John 5.18, they sought to kill Jesus, quote, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so the Son of God is God. And so the virgin birth helps us in our understanding of the nature of Christ. Now, since Satan continually works to denigrate the nature of Christ and cause confusion regarding the nature of Christ, it's no surprise to us that the nature of Christ was a massive debate as early as the 4th and 5th centuries in the church. In the 5th century, the prominent Alexandrian church began to refer to Mary as Theotokos, meaning the bearer of God. And that was to emphasize that God, that Jesus was fully God at birth. But another prominent church, the church at Antioch, objected to that term. And the reason was they felt that it emphasized the deity of Christ over his humanity. And listen to this, church at Antioch, 5th century, said this would create a, an overly high view of Mary. And they were right, weren't they? And so a battle over the nature of Christ ensued. 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon was called. About five or six hundred bishops, and when we think of bishops then, it's not the same as Catholic bishops now. They're simply the heads of churches in various cities. But about five or six hundred bishops met together, and basically they came down to three different positions. The first position, that Christ has only one nature, the nature of God that became flesh and man. This was associated with a man named Eutyches, known as Eutychianism. The second view they came to was that Christ has two distinct natures separate from one another, that he really has a dual personality. This is often called the Nestorian position after the theologian Nestorius who promoted this view. And then the third position became known as the middle position offered by Leo, the bishop of the church at Rome. The middle position would become the basis for the orthodox position we hold today. And the bishops at Chalcedon overwhelmingly agreed with this middle position as representing precisely what Scripture teaches. And so Chalcedonian Christology became the foundation for what we believe today. So what is this middle position of the nature of Christ? That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. He is born of the Virgin Mary after miraculous conception, proving his nature as God and as man. He has two distinct natures and one personality, and Christ is perfect in both. That's it. Now, you may say that doesn't sound surprising. It's because you've been well taught, and the church has been well taught for centuries now. This is often called by theologians the hypostatic union of Christ the hypostatic union, that he's unified in divine and human natures in one person. Hypostatic isn't a fancy word. It just comes from a Greek word used four times in the New Testament. 
It's used most famously in Hebrews 1 verse 3, speaking of Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Same Greek word. It has a complex meaning. It, it means his foundational self. It means his personhood. And we'll get a little bit into the weeds here theologically, but it's important. In the early church discussions, theologians came to use this term, hypostatic in English, not of the sameness of the persons of the Trinity, but of the distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity. And so it came to mean something like person or personhood or personal. So the hypostatic union, this is all you need to know, the bottom line is the personal union of the two natures of Christ into one being. The Chalcedonian Creed, the result of the Council of Chalcedon, rightly says these two natures operate without confusion, change, division, or separation of any kind. The irony here is that that's actually pretty simple to grasp by faith, and yet it's so profound to be incomprehensible. Now, why does this understanding of the nature of Christ, why is that so important to us? I want to get out of the theoretical theology and I want to get into the practical theology. Because listen, this is so important. Let me give you four reasons why the hypostatic union of Christ as proven by the virgin birth is important to you. First, Christ satisfies two God-given longings simultaneously. He satisfies two of our longings given by God The human heart will never be content with that which is merely human. We long for the infinite. We long for the eternal. We long for something God-like. That's our first longing. But what, what else do we long for? We long for humanity. We long to be with one another. We're made that way. And so in Christ, all of our longings for the eternal are satisfied and all of our longings for the human are satisfied. Another reason this is important Christ became the God-man for our sake. He became the God-man for our sake. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Before the incarnation of Christ, incarnation is just a compound Latin word that means in the flesh. But before the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God enjoyed perfect glory and fellowship and love within the magnificent splendor of the Trinity He didn't need us. If anybody ever tells you that Jesus Christ came to the earth because God was lonely and wanted more people, no. He wasn't lonely. But out of love, the Son of God humbled himself to become like us. Philippians 2.7 says that he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And if you can picture this, the Son of God came to earth first not as a baby. He came as a cell. How humbling is that? He became the God-man for our sake. Here's another reason the nature of Christ is important for us. Christ's nature provides a substitute for us. Christ's nature provides a substitute for us. Philippians 2 goes on to say that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now you recall in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which we've studied extensively on Sunday evenings, one of the requirements of an animal sacrifice For sin is that the animal must be spotless, must be pure, no blemishes, no diseases. Clearly shows that a substitute must be clean, it must be holy. And yet an animal, of course, can never substitute for a human. 
And so a perfect human would have to be the substitute sacrifice, a sinless human. And in a fallen world, the only way a human can be sinless is if that human is also God. One more reason the nature of Christ is important for us, the one that will probably become the most important to you, and that is that Christ's nature allows us to see God. Christ's nature allows us to see God. The second person of the Trinity did not become the Son of God at His conception. The triune God has always been God. The Father always been God. The Son always been God. The Holy Spirit. Psalm 2 verse 7 recounts God the Father speaking to the second person of the Trinity in heaven. He said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. This is not that God the Father created the Son, but this is a a coronation formula. This is a crowning of a king. This is the decree of God from eternity past that the Son of God will come to earth and one day will reign. And the rest of Psalm 2 proves that. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Did you catch that? Jesus relates to God as his Father when speaking about what used to be before he ever came to earth. But now... God has made himself manifest in human form. The Son of God, who has always been the Son of God, now comes as a human Son, and we can fully relate to him. Jesus himself said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The invisible, almighty God, whom no man can see and live, is now knowable and relatable in the person of Jesus Christ. And can I... Can I just put a little bit of sanctified imagination to this? When Thomas could not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, what did Jesus have him do? He had him reach out and touch him. Jesus Christ, at this moment, is a human being, fully God, in heaven. And I see no reason to believe that in eternity, one of the ways we will get to relate to Christ is to touch him. How beautiful will that be? Because of the dual nature of Christ, you will see God in the flesh. Oh, how much confidence we get from the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ. We have confidence in the nature of Christ. We also have confidence in the work of Christ. In the work of Christ. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He's to name him Jesus. Greek, the Greek text is Iesus, Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua. Yahweh will save is what Jesus means. Yahweh will save. Jesus would not only tell of God's salvation, he's going to be God's salvation. The salvation for mankind. Jesus came to provide what the Old Testament sacrificial system could never give, nor was it designed to give, and that is permanent, forever forgiveness for all who would repent of their sin and come humbly to God for mercy. And the virgin birth helps us understand the work of Christ as being completely of God, completely God's idea, completely God's impetus, completely God's action. Why? Because The virgin birth of Jesus Christ illustrates and emulates our salvation. 
as God being the sole worker of salvation. God alone does the work of salvation. No human effort is possible or it's effective. Let me prove this to you. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth in at least three ways. First of all, the virgin birth is like our spiritual birth because it's supernatural. It's supernatural. John chapter 3 Jesus told Nicodemus that to be part of the kingdom of God, one must be born again, born of the Spirit of God. And Jesus illustrates in John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so just as Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, so your regeneration, your new heart was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth because it's supernatural. It's also undeserved. It's undeserved. There are no scriptures that tells us that tell us why God chose Mary. Now she certainly manifested qualifications such as faithfulness and dedication, humility, submissiveness, but she had nothing that God needed. Mary was not sinless, by the way. In fact, her inspired prayer song in Luke chapter 1, Mary says, beginning in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior and only sinners need saviors. So she had no merits by which God chose her to be the mother of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, our spiritual birth is undeserved. It's unmerited. God didn't look across the earth and say, I really like this guy. He just seems to be on track. How familiar we are with Ephesians 2.9, which reminds us that our salvation is not the result of our good works, so that no one may what? Boast of their so-called righteousness. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth. It's supernatural, it's undeserved, and it's sovereign. It is sovereign. There wasn't a day when an angel came to the throne room of God and knocked on the door and said, hey, I got this idea. This is amazing. How about we send Jesus to earth and a virgin? No, no one helped God. No one gave God the idea of the virgin birth. Mary didn't meet God halfway. Mary didn't help God. Mary didn't assist God. Did you know that something? We've read both accounts of the virgin birth. God never even asked her permission. He just chose her. He said, congratulations, you're having a baby. That's it. Why did God choose us? The Bible never tells us. We get one little hint. It's just a hint. Ephesians 4, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. That's it. It was sovereign. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth. It's supernatural. It's undeserved. It's sovereign. In fact, Jesus himself said regarding salvation in Matthew 19, verse 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And what did the supernatural, undeserved, sovereign nature of the virgin birth do in Mary's heart? In her heart, in her inspired song of Luke 1, she praises God, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And the supernatural, undeserved, sovereign nature of our salvation causes us to do the same thing, to join the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, to say, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How much confidence we have in the work of Christ that it's enough. 
The virgin birth also gives us confidence in the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Christ. Verse 22 continues, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we spent considerable time last week explaining the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, which is cited here by Matthew. Some guy didn't just show up and say, I'm the Messiah. No, we have confidence that Christ is who he says he is because of the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture. How do you know who Jesus is? We only have one source, and it is the Bible. The virgin birth, far from what detractors would say, the virgin birth is very strongly attested in the Bible. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth is predicted of Emmanuel. We saw last time that Isaiah 8, verse 8, shows Emmanuel to be the owner and the ruler of Israel, and by extension, the owner and ruler of the whole world. In the New Testament, there are two accounts of the virgin birth, here in Matthew 1 and then also in Luke 1. But there are other texts which point to what can only be the virgin birth of Christ. I'll give you a couple of examples. John chapter 2 recounts the famous incident at the wedding of Cana in which Jesus turned water into wine miraculously. And you remember that this days-long wedding celebration had a problem. The host family ran out of wine. That was apparently a big no-no at a wedding. And so Mary, probably related to those getting married, went to Jesus about the problem. And Jesus famously answered, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, I haven't started doing miracles yet. And yet Mary told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Typical mom, she didn't listen at all. She just went right on and just did it. But why did she do that? Why did she say, do whatever he tells you? She had never seen him do a single miracle yet, and yet she had complete faith that he could. Why? Because she knew how he got here. She knew of the miraculous conception in her womb by the Holy Spirit of God. How about John chapter 8? In John 8, Jesus answered conceited men who were doubting him. He had told them, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, meaning Satan. They answered him with pride, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, beginning in verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. Again, your father is Satan. And then, since they couldn't argue with him theologically, they got personal. And they tried to zing him. They said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What were they saying? Unlike someone here, we are not illegitimate children. What does this mean? Well, it means that they knew about the claim of the virgin birth and they didn't believe it. They believed Jesus was born illegitimately. How about Galatians 4, verse 4? God sent forth his son born of a woman. Now, that might seem obvious, born of a woman. That's all of us, right? But Paul is proclaiming something very important here. He's proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the very first prophecy of Messiah, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
that if you read all through the Bible, you'll see very clearly that in Jewish culture and in Scripture, see every genealogy in the Bible, a son was said to be born not of his mother, but born of his father. But Paul says Jesus was born of a woman. Who's the father? God sent forth his son. He is referring very clearly to the virgin birth. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the inspiration of Scripture, to deny the inerrancy of Scripture, to deny the authority of Scripture, which is to say God is not big enough, He's not powerful enough, He's not smart enough to accurately communicate with mankind. But the virgin birth attested so strongly in Scripture gives us confidence that the revelation of Jesus Christ, everything else taught about Him in the Bible is true as well. Well, the virgin birth gives us confidence in the sinlessness of Christ, the nature of Christ, the work of Christ, the revelation of Christ. Here's the most obvious one. The the virgin birth gives us confidence in the deity of Christ, in the deity of Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel in verse 33, which means, 23, God with us. Now, I want to be clear here. God certainly could have still miraculously conceived a baby in Mary's womb after she had had many children. Jesus could have been the eighth of ten kids. And so we would say that the virgin birth wasn't necessary for Jesus to be God, but the virgin birth was necessary for us to know that he is God. It gives us absolute assurance. There's no shadow of a doubt. There's no argument at all. If Jesus was the, a child born in the middle of a bunch of kids, it would be Mary's word against everyone else's. But the fact is, we have many witnesses. We have the angel. We have Joseph. We have Mary. We have Jesus himself. We have many witnesses that he was born of a virgin. Therefore, he is God. And by the way, here in the book of Matthew, the virgin birth sets the tone for the theme of Matthew's gospel that a, a savior king from heaven who is God has come. He is God because Matthew's gospel shows Jesus doing things only God does. I'm just going to rifle through these. Chapter 3, he's affirmed by God the Father as the Son of God. Chapter 9, he forgives sin. Chapters 13 and 24, he commands angels. Chapters 14 and 15, he creates from nothing. Chapter 8, he exerts power over creation. Chapter 20, he demonstrates omniscient, all-knowing knowledge. Chapter 12, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 21, he's Lord of the temple. And how about this? In chapter 22, he is Lord over the long dead King David to whom he spoke a thousand years earlier. Matthew claims Jesus is God and the virgin birth is just the introduction. And if you ignore the virgin birth of Christ, it is to ignore the deity of Christ and to ignore the deity of Christ is to miss who he is altogether. Now, I hope I've proven to you that the virgin birth is the only reasonable beginning. It's the only logical beginning of the ministry of God in the flesh, God with us. And boy, this little encounter with an angel changed everything for Joseph. His life turned on a dime. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. He was obedient to the Lord. He took his wife. That was a command. 
He called the child's name Jesus. That was a command. And then there's a third thing in here that he didn't do. He didn't unite with his wife until after the birth of Jesus, implying that the angel commanded him that as well. So I have one last question. I think we need to settle this now. Can a true Christian deny the virgin birth? Does the doctrine matter that much? If you deny the virgin birth in your heart, if you truly in your heart do not believe that, um, that, that God could come in this way, you deny the authority of Scripture. I've already shown you that. You deny the supernatural birth of the Savior Jesus. You leave Jesus open to being a sinful human and you have no foundation upon which to believe the deity of Christ. Now, the virgin birth doesn't stand alone, independent of other doctrines. It is bound inextricably to Christology, to the person and work of Christ. It's bound inextricably to soteriology, to the work of the cross. It's bound inextricably to the gospel itself. And so can a person deny the virgin birth and be a true Christian? That answer must be an emphatic no. No. And so right now, at this moment, if you still think the virgin birth is bogus, you are not saved. And you need to repent and come to the Savior. But for us who do believe, we do worship the virgin-born Savior. How encouraging it is. How confidence-building. Listen carefully. This is so important. The one who stepped out of eternity to become a baby must be and is able and willing and powerful to save you when you step into eternity. Amen? He must be that powerful, and he is. Let's pray. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the text of Scripture, which is so very, very clear to us. We praise you, Lord, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, came in the most humble and yet most spectacular fashion possible. He came as a mere child, as a baby, and yet like no other baby ever born. And so we praise you, we worship you, because our Savior is one in which we have full confidence that when our fragile human hearts beat for the last time, when the last tear rolls down our eyes, when our breath is no longer in us, and when our body fails us, that the one who stepped out of eternity and was shown and proven to be gloriously God, almighty God, can with his human hand grasp ours and take us home. We praise you and thank you for the great confidence. We thank you for the season in which we remember our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.